I'm Kate Daniels. During this pandemic, as we've had to slow down to some degree, hopefully we've been able to see the impact of our life and lifestyle on our fragile planet. Dr. Gabby Wild joins us now to bring some insights from her travel around the globe to treat endangered wild species, and she brings them to life in a wonderful new book from National Geographic Kids, Wild Vet Adventures, Saving Animals Around the World. It's a perfect education for all ages. Dr. Gabby Wild, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Well, I am just so excited because you are an amazing woman and you, in all the work, amazing work that you do, I'm going to use this word a few times, I guess, you have this really amazing book, Wild Vet Adventures Saving Animals Around the World with Dr. Gabby Wild. And, you know, as an adult... I just love this book. I can just you know, lose myself in it. And I can imagine that because it's written for a younger audience, well, it's National Geographic's Kids who has published this. So it is for for kids, for youth. But I think any of us will learn something invaluable by picking up this book. Wouldn't you agree? I would certainly hope so. Absolutely. Although Nat Geo and I targeted the book for mostly 7 to 12-year-olds. Even my 17-month-old son opens up the book and looks through the pages and goes, ooh, and he sees cool things. Certainly stops and recognizes that there's a mummy in the book as well. (laughs) But an adult, too, you know, I find whether it's a book on kids for engineering or kids in, in space, I'm learning things about it. So even for adults, The book takes everyone on a journey throughout the different continents to look at the different vibrant species that are characteristic of their their homes. So, of course, vibrant species like a cheetah, but then the unique species that people may not have even heard of, like pangolins or, you know, dung beetles. I'm sure people have heard of them, but less charismatic until you read out the book and see what they're really like. And then it's so important that they learn not only cool facts about the animals, but also how a veterinarian approaches these different species. And then more importantly than even all of that is how humans interact with their animals, whether it's the impact the animal has on people or people on these species. And getting that understanding of the different cultures around the world was really important to me when I made this book with National Geographic. So that is a very key point in terms of being that so much more aware, being informed and educated about these incredible animals and their habitat and how we as humans uh, are impacting what their future will be like. I hate to have to say if they have a future. So this is to make sure that they do, because if if we are informed and we can do that with this kind of education, then there is hope for a future. Yes. And what's so important to understand is it's not just their future, it's ours. Our ecosystems are, are interlinked. We see that just having, for example, the radioactive material from Japan affected the fishes and wildlife in the oceans in the Pacific that's had other effects upon us 
here in the United States. So this isn't something that's isolated. And the more we come to recognize it, it's a one health philosophy that our world is highly interconnected. It's not just going to be about saving this elephant, about saving this species. It'll be about what happened when we destroyed that species that we thought it was just a little brown bird, but it had this X effect. And that effect resulted in this entire ecosystem potentially being severely affected. And that ecosystem being affected affected the people, which later could lead to other issues of famine, war, water deprivation. And so the more we come to recognize that all of these smaller impacts later build up is something that we need to be very cognizant of. If I can interject a few scary facts, you know, about 26% of all mammals, 30% of sharks and manta rays, 13% of birds, you know, a little under 50%, like 42% or so of amphibians are at risk of extinction. That's petrifying, especially knowing that we have yet to classify 86% of wildlife or life on, on the face of the earth, let alone what's underneath the ocean. So these are things we need to be thinking about. Oh, with without question. It's so on the point then of the bird species, and I'm mentioning this one in particular because I know that this is um, a a very uh, current topic that they're right now at the at the government level, at the federal level. There is a, a reversal of something that happened in in just the last. Actually, it was signed into law, I think, uh, in in November or December, about the birds and accidental killing of birds was not going to be held, a person was not going to be held accountable, or a company wouldn't be held accountable for that. Uh, perhaps this is just brand new news to you, or maybe you're very aware of that. Yes, so although that, that has now been enacted, what the impact of that will be has yet to be determined. Naturally, if people feel like there's less law enforcement for it, they're going to do as they please. The big question whenever we say, yeah, we put an act into place, is who's going to enforce it? Mm -hmm. So was that being properly enforced prior to the law or was it not? I, I don't know the, the data on that. But all I can say is by no longer having that potential enforcement, we now no longer have the ability to protect them the way we need to. And that's where, rather than looking for a law that will have to enforce it, I think what you're really encouraging all of us to do, as you have done, is to really become more aware of our environment and our interconnectedness and the value of all life in that way uh, and to regard it as, as precious. Certainly. You know, there's only so much time during the day to learn about all of the social issues going on in this world. But if you can try to focus on the things that are near and dear to you, and if you're listening to this, it would probably therefore be wildlife and conservation, then learning about it and understanding what we need to be doing to protect our planet and our resources is, is of absolute essential necessity right now. 
because we are running out of time. So was this your inspiration to pursue your career, your life in veterinary science? Had it to do with conservation? Certainly. So my my natural love of wildlife started as a child, but it was as I began to work with elephants when I was 16 that solidified that this was the area of veterinary medicine that I wanted to go into. And I just had a, a natural penchant and love for it. And that's helped me through some of these more difficult decisions and difficult times. But I like to describe that there are all these seeds of hope. There are people like yourself who care. And there are other awesome conservationists out there and wonderful groups that are promoting and and saving animals. And it's always a blessing for me to work with such people. And to that end, not only are you actively a veterinarian, you, you have so many different kind of, what, interests and activities. You have your foundation, a nonprofit foundation that's dedicated to protecting wildlife. Yes, yes, I do. So the Gabby Wild Foundation has a multifaceted approach, one, of course, being providing wildlife veterinary services, which cannot happen without these amazing people like yourself who donate and sponsor for us to go out into the wild. I'm sure your medical bills are pretty high. Well, imagine an elephant's medical bill. So that medication is pretty expensive just because of the sheer quantity. So that's one aspect of, of working with a variety of organizations to help them when they do find some injured wildlife. So that's one aspect. And there's the conservation branch where we have a base out in Sumatra that has 24-7 eco-guards and camera traps. And um, we protect that area of the rainforest, mainly Sumatran rhino, elephant, and tiger. And then the other parts are education, which naturally the book falls under. And then, of course, the eco-fashion that we do. We try to promote a sustainable lifestyle because the individual might not be able to go out to Sumatra and plant a tree, nor would it really be a very sustainable idea to have everybody go out and plant a tree when we have a lovely group of people that are out there doing it. But having somebody say, hey, what can I do to live a more sustainable lifestyle? So that tree doesn't need to even be cut down in the first place. That is the goal of it. So we host eco-fashion shows and promote sustainable and ethical fashion in an attempt to unite people and help wildlife and fundraise for them. And that part of it, the eco-fashion, I think is is genius uh, in the sense of, you know, acknowledging that we love pretty clothes, but they need to, and they need to be functional, but they need to be such that they um, are sustainable. We're not going to be cutting down more trees or ruining the water Uh and or, or killing an animal for it. And, and you show some of the pictures of yourself modeling the clothing. So I think that also is a piece of the engagement here. Absolutely. And it's, it's so much fun to work with designers that have hand-dyed their own clothing. Kind of going back to the cottage system of 
fabricating clothing that you cherish for years, that you'll sew together if there's a, a hole. You're not just going to throw it away, that you'll consider more of using something or going to a thrift shop to, to get something that was second second loved is what I like to, to call it, second loved or third loved. Um, those kinds of experiences are, are really valuable. And then working with these designers who are not only thinking about the fabric that they're using and the dyes they're using and how they're disposing of all of these things and how to actually use fabric in a sustainable way so there's less waste. But where did that fabric come from? What woman went in, and usually it is women, that went into making it? What were her conditions like? Was it safe? Was it healthy? Was she abused? Was she paid a fair living wage for the country she's in? These are all huge factors that go into the sustainable fashion industry that we need to be conscientious about that I don't think we give enough attention to because your decision as a consumer has a huge impact. And if these people who make the clothing are living in very terrible conditions, that's going to affect the environment, not just the actual production itself. And in the end, that affects the animals that I'm trying to protect. Yes, it really illustrates that interconnectivity with all of us and needs to just keep being underscored and repeated, which, again, this incredible book, Wild Vet Adventures from National Geographic Kids, is just so wonderful in that regard. One more thing I do want to kind of touch on with fashion because of the the pictures that you provide um, modeling uh, uh, several of the outfits. One of them is that beautiful, colorful dress that imitates the the look of uh, of a particular bird uh, from New Zealand. Oh, the cockapoo parrot. Yes, that was designed by the original Project Runway winner Jane McCarroll. And he did an exquisite job of his interpretation of the cockapoo parrot, which is a uh, one of, considered one of the oldest species of parrot. It's a flightless parrot. It's the heaviest parrot. And um, they live in New Zealand. They are critically endangered, and the teams out in New Zealand are doing an amazing job to restore that animal. And Jay did a gorgeous job hand sewing each of those feathers. He used recycled plastic material to create the feathers. His his work was just unbelievable. Well, the look of it is unbelievable. And as you were saying how, you know, to to repurpose, reuse um, a, an article of clothing, I could see this as being, you know, a special dress that you you wear multiple times, not just on one occasion, that, that it is so beautiful and distinctive that you, you want to wear it again and again. Absolutely. And in fact, he, he created this campaign in the charity where I would wear one outfit that represented a threatened animal for a whole month and only that one outfit for each month of the year. And so for his outfit... He created the cockapoo parrot, and I did actually wear that dress every single day for an entire month. And for some circumstances, that was an interesting choice to be wearing out in public, but it got the point across. 
I don't. I don't suppose. Well, if you went into surgery, you'd no doubt have uh, your scrubs or whatever over top of the dress, or you'd take the dress off and just wear your scrubs. I would take it definitely, <laughs> yeah. definitely. When I was working with with cows and such, I certainly took off the dress and put <laughs> on my, you know, my my dungarees. But yes. <laughs> so that is a, a wonderful aspect of. Uh, it, it, of this foundation, of your Gabby Wild Foundation. And it just shows, I think, that way that everything is so interconnected because we don't necessarily maybe think consciously of, oh, that fashion is related somehow to the environment. But here you are underscoring that. Absolutely. And then the more we delve into each thing we purchase, more we realize its impact on the environment. So again, that heightened awareness of what we're doing and the impact that we have on our dear, wonderful planet, which it could survive well enough without us. And and we're certainly giving it, it, right? Can't it? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I, I couldn't underscore what you're saying enough it's our um our physical impact on the environment that has really caused for this what we are calling the sixth mass extinction although most people traditionally think of it more as oh we poached these animals that was more the issue of the ice age but at this point it's mostly what we're doing to the environment itself either by encroaching it or by habitat degradation or destruction. Right. And so here with this book, For All Ages, as we had said earlier, Wild Vet Adventures, and traveling around, which you have done yourself, of course. This is not just uh, taking someone else's experiences or pictures. You have done this travel and have reached out and, and worked with these different species in these on these different continents to provide this really overall global story for us. Yes, yes. So this book, a lot of people might ask, how long did it take to write? Well, it, it was a process of, you know, all these amazing individuals from National Geographic over about three or so years. But the key is that this is my life work. I've traveled, as you said, all over the world to help these unique creatures. And on many occasions, you know, I don't have a great film crew or anybody taking fabulous photos. But on certain occasions, I do. And we try to highlight as many of the experiences as we could um, within a reasonable amount of pages. Um, And, yeah, that's been the, the joy of bringing my world to you guys and giving you a different perspective of the world. A big, a big thing that I have found in working with wildlife and internationally is a cultural perspective and being very culturally sensitive of other organizations. We, um, we, we come from, as you can hear from my accent and such, we come from a Western perspective of life. And in many of the developing nations, where women are perceived and how women work is very, very different. 
And I don't judge it as good, bad, or ugly. It just provides me with a wonderful experience to learn their sensitivities, be respectful of what they would prefer a woman do, and then if they trust me, to allow me to do it. And a, a really good experience to, to delve into that was when I was a new vet and I had been working at the, uh, the King's Elephant Sanctuary and Hospital and one of the Mahouts or elephant trainers who would bring his elephant commonly to be checked on at the hospital didn't want me to work on it because he didn't feel that a, a female doctor would be the appropriate choice. And these other veterinarians had known me since I was 16 and had trained me and they were like, you are going to have Dr. Gabby take care of your elephant and that's final, otherwise you're going to leave. And it was interesting from that experience because not only did he enjoy working with me, every time he returned, he would tell them, I don't want that doctor, I want Dr. Gabby. <laughs> and it was so interesting developing that kind of a relationship and not trying to push my way as a, as a, as a woman and try to erode his personal cultural norms and what they might see, but just to be respectful of how they perceive things. And I think bringing people on my journey gives you a unique perspective as well on cultural norms. Just the best way to educate, isn't it, with with just mm -hmm. being and doing, doing your work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And, and not judging anyone in the process and actually feeling very grateful when someone gets to teach you something that kind of shakes your boots and makes you realize, wow, I have always thought in the forward direction, but I never thought backwards about this situation. Which is beautiful. Those are perhaps some of the circumstances you don't know what ripple effect will evolve from that. But I think there's a sense of how things could change in that community and in, in, uh, in that uh, environment because of, of how you are and who you are. Thank you. Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully. So this was the experience with an elephant. We might think that that could be kind of scary because the elephant is so huge, but I think they are also very much a gentle animal, are they not? Depends. It certainly depends. So they have personalities just like different dogs have personalities and horses and people, believe it or not. And I try not to anthropomorphize if I can help it. But what I would say is that um, wild elephants should certainly be feared. No doubt about it. I do not enjoy being caught in a situation like that. They should want to kill you. They should want to harm you because they perceive you as a threat. Um, I've worked with a lot of domesticated elephants, mainly because of the logging industry and what it's, it's done to elephants and how they've changed their usefulness in Asia, and of course, in, in the zoo settings where they are familiarized with us. When they get to know you and they feel that they can trust you, especially if the person who takes care of them, whether that is their mahout or the zookeeper, if they show trust in you or they come to know you, it's an incredible experience. Um, but then there are some that they are only going to trust that one person. 
And just as you can imagine, there's some dogs. They are just going to trust their owner, and that is it. So it's actually in a very similar sense that they um, that they act. Um, I find personally from working with elephants, their intelligence is out of this world, and indeed their memories really do uh, last a long time. It might be a year or two or three, in fact, if I haven't seen my elephant, who's basically my she's my car when I'm in in Thailand. Um, she's known me, as I, I've told you, since I was 16. I might not see her for a little while, and the first thing she does is she recognizes me and looks for the treats that I usually hide behind my back, first thing. So their, their memories are absolutely incredible. And having the opportunity to get to know them is really fun. That just sounds so delightful. Would you say that that would perhaps be your favorite animal, or is there another one that that uh, tops your list? I I have to say I love mega herbivores, so like elephants and rhinos. I I love all creatures for various reasons, but I have felt that I've been able to work really well with elephants, and also I personally like um, Indian and Sumatran rhinos a lot. They just, I, I just tend to like their, their personalities, but they're extremely dangerous. But I really enjoy working with them. I also happen to really like working with penguins. Um, they just, they're just funny. They're just really, really funny. They smell. I'll tell you that. People need to remember that they smell real bad, but they are just hilarious. <laughs> that is so delightful to hear. Some of this, uh, a lot of this we can find in the pages of this remarkable book from National Geographic Kids, Wild Vet Adventures, Saving Animals Around the World with Dr. Gabby Wild. And really, I just can't state enough how fascinating, but beyond fascinating and educational, it's so critically important, as we said at the outset, of the awareness that this brings to the the need for us to to be aware of nature of wildlife and how this is the only way for our planet to survive is for us to to really have that awareness absolutely and thank you so much for echoing that to all your listeners well, I am more than happy to do that because it is so critically important. Uh, you know, we're we're not going to be able to to survive and have a good life if we are going to be just crushing some of these more vulnerable populations that are critically important to the whole ecosystem of our planet. Right? Hundred percent. Yes. Well, I am just so grateful for for you, Dr. Wild, and for the work that you're doing and for certainly taking time with us this morning. It's just been so informative and and delightful, so interesting. Thank you so greatly for the work that you're doing, and I hope that uh, we'll, we'll perhaps, uh, well, actually with your website, we can follow you and get more information, right? Yes, yes, please do. The website is gabbywild.org. And then our social media, we post a lot of videos and photos on Instagram. So it's dr.gabbywild. 
and then on Facebook, of course, and Twitter, and YouTube, we're going to be releasing a little episode later this month about the adventures we go on so you can feel the way it is on these crazy, wild adventures. Well, we must make sure to do that. So again, thank you for your incredible work. Thank you, and I hope you stay wild. (laughs) You as well.